1: How's it going? And welcome to episode 95 of On The Wire. Proud member of the Pitcher List Podcast Network. Follow the pod on the Twitter at OnTheWirePod. If you're listening on a platform that allows ratings and reviews, please take a second to let us know what you think. I am Adam Howe. You can still follow me on the Twitter at 80grade. That's all spelled out. And once again, joined by Kevin Hastings, who should be followed himself on the Twitter at HastingKevin and this is 95 Kevin this is episode 95 we are inching closer and closer to the coveted episode 100 which i know is a number that not a lot of podcasts get to but i think we we you had this idea earlier in the off season and i think we're going to i think we're going to land on it looking like we're going to be able to do episode 100 during PitchCon coming up at the end of January so that's pretty exciting
2: yeah, absolutely. And crazy to think about, actually. It does not seem like it's been a little over two years now and approaching 100 episodes in. But yeah, it's all thanks to our guests and listeners.
1: Oh, absolutely. Can't give them enough credit for sure. Now, I think I, I got to look it up. I should probably look it up ahead of time. But I don't think we've hit the two year mark. Technically, I think the podcast network was launched in February of or just before or during PitchCon, basically of 20 2020 so i think we're or 2021 excuse me i think we're gonna hit that two year mark and that it's pretty cool to know that we've averaged out an episode a week if you do it that way which that, is that makes
2: it even more crazy to think yeah, about right and you're absolutely right i'm thinking about <laughs> the typical i came on to pitcher list in october but yeah absolutely that was as a writer in the podcast network was not even in existence yet just a plan and so yeah you're absolutely right and that makes it even more crazy to me. Three yeah, or four right? months <laughs> less time, and I,
1: I and not to pat ourselves on the back, but you and I have been doing this together. I think we've missed maybe six episodes or so over that time span, where it was just you or just me, plus obviously a guest. I don't think either one of us is going has or. Wants to try the solo pod route, but I know many, including our guest here today, that's the direction that they're more than willing to go, and I give them more than more credit than I could possibly take it's for doing so much such a harder
2: thing. than people realize. Yeah. I have done it, and it is. You think, oh, I can just sit here and talk for thirty minutes, but as you alluded to, our guests can expand more on that. It is. Very difficult to keep your train of thought going and keep everything fluid when you're all solo.
1: All right. So we we'll, let's no more alluding. Let's get right to it. We got a great guest with us this week to talk about some really fun stuff. And that is Joe Orico. He's the host of Fantasy MLB Today podcast. He's also the head of baseball over at sports sportsethos.com. You should be following Joe on the Twitter at Joe Orico99. That's with two R's in Orico. We're going to talk to Joe not only about his podcast and what he does, but a few narratives and biases that we see fantasy baseball, in fantasy baseball and whether or not maybe they have any substance. Before we get into all of that, Joe, thanks for joining us, man. How you doing?
3: Guys, I'm great. It's really fantastic to be on with you guys. Kevin, we spent quite a bit of time together in Arizona, so it's great to see you again. Adam, speaking for the first time in person, quote-unquote, I guess yeah, will use the it, yeah, Zoom. Sure. <laughs> But it, cl- close enough to in person as we're going to get outside of something like Arizona or Florida or Las Vegas or one of those fantasy baseball events. But yeah, it's great to be talking with you guys. And like you said, doing the solo pod... I love it because I don't have to be beholden to a schedule, really. I can record at eight in the morning. I can record at eight o'clock at night. I don't have to worry about coordinating with somebody. But there are definitely days where it would be nice to toss back and forth with the co-host. And that's when I I bring on guests, usually about once a week. And those ones are a little bit easier to get through because there's someone to, to, you only have to talk for half the time or even less (laughs) sometimes when you're co-hosting with somebody. It definitely can be a challenge, but at the same time, it's a lot of fun. I love doing it.
1: Oh, That's my whole mentality, man. This is why we have guests on and I have Kevin here so I can just lean on all the smart people around me to make myself sound a lot better too. Um, I'll be leaning on you guys both for this one and we have a lot to get through. So no, no need to worry about the solo pod here. We've got plenty of great minds to talk about some interesting moves that have been being made. I thought that we've gone through our news and notes episodes for the offseason, but the, the news just keeps on coming. Players keep getting signed. Trades happen now and again. We've got four signings that I want... Uh, five signings because we did miss one on our last episode. Kevin, we'll start it off there with that one. Craig Kimball, he joins the Philadelphia Phillies. Assuming he signs and gets to the back end of that bullpen option... Uh, can and should he actually win the closer gig out of opening day what's your thoughts on Kimbrel in Philadelphia
2: I think I'm gonna echo what I heard Anthony Gialde tell Casey Bubba live Bubba has done a couple of podcasts during a gladiator draft and most recently he did that with Anthony on and this came up during that draft and Anthony said Kimbrel will get some saves we can count on that now we don't know if we're gonna get good Craig Kimbrell and he rolls off and gives us 30 even 25 plus we don't know if that's the Craig Kimbrel we're gonna get we could take a big hit in ratios with Kimbrell depending on which Kimbrel we get which situation they put him in we believe just from what we've seen over the years that he does not perform nearly as well in a setup or a non-closion role as he has as a closer over the years. So it'll be interesting to see, but they probably brought him in with the intent on at least giving him a shot and he's going to get some safes. And that's something to take into account, adding 10 saves at a time from different guys throughout the season can be very beneficial. We hope we don't take too big of a hit in the ratio categories, but the, there will be some there. It's a big hit to Sir Anthony Dominguez. I believe because in my opinion, Kimbrell probably does get the first shot unless Spring just goes absolutely horrible for him.
1: Yeah, I always will lean. It, this hurts me because I am I was a fan of Sir Anthony. I, was, I think I have one or two leagues with some exposure to him right now just because it seemed like he was going to get that shot. But I usually will lean on the narrative, as we'll get to some new other narratives later, that especially when it comes to the bullpen, anybody still eligible for arbitration is going to get the bump down to somebody who is getting guaranteed money, With experience, just because every team, whether they admit it or not, is trying to find any way to manipulate how much money they're going to have to spend in the future. Now, of course, there are exceptions to that. But in general, Sir Anthony Dominguez is still going to be arbitration eligible for the next two or three years, I believe. And obviously, Kimbrel's way past that. And he's gonna be guaranteed that $10 million. It's only a one year deal. Ten million dollars is in that range of quote unquote low end closer money. It's not enough money that he has a guaranteed spot for sure, but it's enough money to say that I agree with you. I think that's gonna be the first shot. Joe, was the Philadelphia bullpen a situation that you w- would be targeting before this move? And does this move keep just is it too gray of an area to even be targeting it all now?
3: At this point for me it probably is. It's funny when we were in Arizona for first pitch I was sitting right beside Kevin at the draft table there and I picked Jose Alvarado with one of my last picks there. I think it was around 22 or 23 and I think I reached a little bit for him expecting that there would be some save opportunities for him this coming season now. And the water is really muddied in terms of all three of those guys, Dominguez, Alvarado, and Kimbrell. If you look at the resource right now, they have Kimbrell projected as a middle reliever, which I don't think is going to happen. I think he will get some saves, but I think overall when you're drafting, for the most part, you're going to probably be staying away from these guys. Now, at the current price of Craig Kimbrell right now, he's going in DCs at pick 362. So it doesn't really hurt you there, especially when our draft restarts, Cab, I'm not even sure if, if he was taken before, but he's somebody who you'd have a little bit more interest in maybe knowing that he's actually signed. But at the same time, there could be 10 saves for each of those guys or 12 saves for each of those guys throughout the season. And I wouldn't really be surprised. So I think for the most part, I am going to be trying to avoid it where I can in drafts going forward.
1: It seems like there's gonna be a lot of mouths to feed. To my earlier point, Alvarado, this is his last year of arbitration. He's a free agent after the 2023 season. And Sir Anthony Dominguez still has two years, so he won't be a free agent until 2025. Alvarado might not matter then. The fact that this will be his last arbitration contract that he gets, doesn't matter how many saves he puts up. It's not going to affect the contract that could be provided in that fashion moving forward. So he might still be more of an option than Sir Anthony in that for that reason. All right, getting into bullpens. We got a couple, we have three different starting pitchers signed with new teams. Two of them came from the same team. Now moving on elsewhere. Let's start Joe with Rich Hill. He signs with the Pittsburgh Pirates on a one-year deal. This is still the Pirates and it's still 52-year-old Rich Hill. Can he do enough with the Pirates rotation in pitching in the NL Central, which granted it's not, It's more of a balanced schedule. So they play each other less, but they still, it's still going to be playing them more often than not. Does it make him viable in shallower formats?
3: I don't think so. I think there might be stretches throughout the season where maybe he has a two step within the division at home or let's say he's facing the Cubs on Monday and then he's got Pittsburgh or not Pittsburgh like Cincinnati at home on Saturday or something Mm -hmm. I think that he'd make a viable streamer in those situations but in terms of shallower let's call it a 12-team league where you're drafting standard three outfielders kind of thing more of a home league setting I don't see him having rosterable value throughout the season I think there will be times perhaps where you can bank on him for stretches because of the weaker division But at the same time, we're not even going to be getting as many division games this season. And the fact that Rich Hill is still pitching, is incredible. He's going to be 43 the next time he throws a major league pitch. We really don't know what we're going to get out of him. It might be good. It might be all right. There were stretches this year where he was okay over the last couple of seasons, really. He's aged very well. But I do think there is an expiration date on that, and I'm not sure when it's going to be. But the fact that he's pitching for Pittsburgh, there's going to be limited opportunities for victories, even though there is a weaker division there. We're probably looking at best-case scenario for the Pirates, 70 wins, absolute best-case scenario, probably how many is Rich Hill really going to get to go with low strikeout numbers and mediocre ratios. I wouldn't be drafting him outside of DC's right now, and you don't need to be because his ADP is very low down the board. He's not somebody that I'd have a lot of confidence going into next season with.
1: Yeah, this is a type of guy, especially in shallower format. Yeah, Maybe m- Nick Pollock talks about this all the time. Like, maybe you look at his initial schedule and see if he's got some decent matchups. He does face Cincinnati, which, you know, is a nice matchup on paper, except it's in Cincinnati, which obviously is the opposite of PNC Park. I mean, he'll probably skip his return to Boston. He probably won't make a start against his old team, but then he gets the White Sox right after that in Pittsburgh, which is nice, and then probably faces off in St. Louis as well, which if you look at par factors, which I don't have in front of me, but I know that I've seen them recently, Busch Stadium has been it was playing a lot more neutral than I think that a lot of people thought it had been much more pitcher-friendly in the past. That might be more just a recency thing, but still something to consider as you're looking forward into the season. Kevin, we're looking at an environment in Pittsburgh. I alluded to like, PNC is a nice place to pitch, but is it enough... To have any kind of extra intrigue plus the balance the, the balance out the possibility of wins, as uh, we talked about, Joe just mentioned, or anybody else in the Pirates rotation for that matter? Is there anybody in that rotation that kind of can move over that concern just because they're in a nice ballpark?
2: It's tough. It has to be a really good situation. Definitely not someone I'm drafting, planning on using on a consistent basis. I think Joe hit the nail on the head. You keep an eye on him as a streamer to start weeks. And even in that situation, not doing it as chasing wins, it would be chasing strikeouts and some nice ratios and a good matchup for the week because... Two things going against him. It's not just that it's the Pittsburgh Pirates offensive lineup supporting him. It's also he averaged less than five innings per start last season. Averaged. So he's not even often pitching to qualify for a win. Now, does that change with Pittsburgh? Quite possibly. They probably need him to eat up more innings. And towards the end of the season, he was going six and even seven innings on occasion. So it could bump up, but then we still have, even if he overcomes that, we still have the fact that it is the Pittsburgh Pirates offensive lineup trying to support him. So a double whammy there. I don't think we could ever in any matchup really count on a good possibility of a win. It would be more plays for strikeouts and ratios in in the nice matchups, especially a two-start week, as Joe mentioned.
1: Yeah, not, not that this was a concern. The one thing Rich Hill's going to pitch as long as they let him and they're going to let him. He's the only lefty in that rotation, which is odd a little bit for this type of team at this moment, but the concern that he the concern that he'll ever lose that job obviously is non-existent. So if you're looking for innings, granted maybe it's not the uh, the kind of innings that are going to get you a win every every time out, but they're going to be there. And like you said, Kevin, I think that maybe Pittsburgh is going to be the type of team that just lets him go because, because why not? $10 million for one year. He's obviously going to be a trade candidate at the deadline, assuming that there's no trade restrictions in his contract, which I don't believe there would be. And so that's something to look at as well. All right. The other name moving away from the Red Sox rotation, Nathan Iavaldi, he signs with the Texas Rangers. Is Kevin, is there a, a better chance that Texas goes with a six man rotation now that they join? Evaldi joins the likes of Jacob DeGrom, uh, John Gray, Anthony, Andrew Heaney, and others? Or would they be more likely to manage innings by piggybacking certain starters or skipping starts to avoid the injury risk because this rotation definitely has it?
2: I don't think this is a group of guys where they're going to do any of that. By choice, they may, they most definitely will be forced to do something along those lines at some point, but I don't think they're going into season with Jacob de Martin Perez, John Gray, Nathan Eovaldi, or Andrew Heaney, accepting the fact going into the season that we're in a six man rotation, or we're going to get skipped intentionally At points, I think these are all guys that they're going to let roll every fifth day when healthy, which may only be the first time through the rotation of the season if they even get that far. We know with some of the histories of these guys, but I think they're going to try to let these guys go. I think the monitoring the workload and the innings may come more on a per start basis as we've been seeing the trend in Major League Baseball for several years now they've also been building up their bullpen as well especially with jose leclerc seems to be back from injury jonathan hernandez suffered an injury about the same time came back about the same time they like him now brock burke had flashes last year they're closer for most of last season and who had a decent season in that spot joe barlow is like they're fourth reliever on the roster resource depth chart now. So I think this is what we're going to see. This is not even including Jake Odorizzi, who if needed would probably be the guy that would get a spot start here and there, but he's in that bullpen right now. So he could go two, three, even four innings when needed. I think they will try to monitor the workloads on a per start basis, not by, going to a six-man rotation or using an opener or anything along those lines. It just doesn't. Dayton Moore from Kansas City there now. Mike Maddox back. This Going to a six-man rotation isn't something I think that they're going to want to employ with these five guys when healthy.
1: Jake Rodriguez is the one I was alluding to. I didn't mention him at the top as being that sixth man. I know Mm -hmm. that he was pretty vocal when his time in Houston of not really being happy with the way that he was being utilized by the Astros, taking him out after two times through the order, not being able to make it past the fourth inning. And I wonder if he's held on to any of that and would not be terribly happy in this role as the, the long, the swing man, if you will, and or would force the issue as granted he was, He didn't sign with Texas. He was traded. They traded for him. And so his role is not set in stone by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah, I agree. If it's a five man and he's not in that six man rotation, he would be that first man up. And you're right. They have built up that bullpen. And they've even done it in a way this offseason, they build up that bullpen just by filling out their rotation and kind of forcing talented pitchers like Ode Rizzi in his own right into the bullpen, not to mention all those other younger guys that we've seen over the last two years, the Dane Dunnings of the world, stuff like that. Uh, they become not only rotation filler options coming up from the minors, but also those swing man options in the bullpen to eat up those innings and give those guys at the top of the, of the bullpen a little bit more rest.
2: Yeah. I think pitchers like Jake Odorizzi, I know there's some guys that are not happy with the way they're utilized at times, but you go back to his time in Minnesota. He was great when they limited him to two times through the order. And they actually tried after that was working, then to to stretch him out. Okay, he's he's doing well. Let's see if he can face some more hitters, and he would just get bombed, bombed. So yeah. it's not it's not up to him, quite frankly.
1: To I be see, fair, Minnesota does know, that with a lot of pitchers,
2: right? But <laughs> my point is, he is a different pitcher, completely. He every pitcher is worse third time through the order. We can show that with numbers, but some are even worse than others. And he's one of those. You get the coaching staff is just going to show him, Hey, look, you don't perform nearly as well. When you face a guy a third time, whether you like that or not, it's the case. So we're not going to run you out there.
1: Yeah, it's not a, it's not you, it's me. It's definitely a, it's not us, it's you situation. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I said it at the top, Joe, this is not a rotation that, put it this way, this is not a rotation that will not get hurt. They're not immune from that. They have lots of history here. Is there anybody that you are more afraid of, of getting that first long-term IL stint? And are you straying away from them in drafts this year because of that?
3: I think it has to be DeGrom just because of the price and of course because of the injury history as well but when you look like beyond DeGrom the next highest pitcher by ADP is John Gray he's going around pick 200 so you pick John Gray he gets hurt he misses some time you're taking him in around whatever it is 12 13 14 it's not going to sting you as badly as Jacob DeGrom would with his third round probably by the time we get to the draft season second round ADP so He'd be the guy that I'm most concerned about, although I think the answer could be everybody. Like, this whole rotation could get injured at some point or another. There's a lot of injury history there. I think that they have the potential to be a very good rotation. I've heard some people talking, just as a side note, the last few days. And I think it might have even been on Fangraph. They have the second-best rotation in baseball, or the second- or third-best rotation. I don't see that. I think it's DeGrom and a lot of mediocrity, and he's the one where you really have to be worried about, just mostly because of the price. These other guys that you take, them, you take Jake Odorizzi with the flyer, he's going after pick 500, it doesn't really matter so much. Even Nathan Ebaldi, at pick 250, like, I think that's pretty good value if he does happen to go down or he doesn't get that velocity back up like we're hoping for, he doesn't have a good season or whatever. I don't think any of these guys are really going to hurt you the way that a DeGrom pick would just because of the draft capital that would be involved in it.
1: I'll get your guys' take on this. I don't see this landing spot doing pretty much anything for Iavaldi's ADP at this point. Do you guys want to throw any cold water on that or do you guys on the same page?
3: He's been talked up a lot these last few days. Fantasy Baseball Twitter, there's been a lot of people that I've seen saying it's a great pick. It's a great value here at two fifty. It's a better ballpark. It's arguably a better team at this point. Maybe he gets pushed up. There's no argument. (laughs) (laughs) He gets pushed up maybe a round or two. Like I couldn't see him going inside the top 200, but maybe he's just outside of that. By the time we get finished right now, he's at 251. And I haven't even, actually, that's since November 1st in draft champions. That's his ADP of 251. So maybe he gets pushed up a little bit. I don't think it's going to be anything that would really keep me away from him, though.
1: Kevin, are you taking Iovaldi any higher than he's going because of this landing spot? Or is it pretty much a wash?
2: I I like his price. I would reevaluate if he goes up too much. Uh, but yeah, I like him here. Just running a real quick auction calculator with steamer projections. He comes out in the top 60 of starting pitchers. And I think that's, that's decent for his draft cost. They're giving him 155 innings there. That might be a little ambitious. So if you are in the opinion that he does not get to that number and you adjust that number down, he would drop. But I think where he's being drafted is taking that into account. It's built into the price. Yeah, I don't think he moves too much. Guys almost always bump up a little bit when we see them sign. But I think think the general perception for a majority of fantasy players is that Texas is still not ready to really compete even with the moves they've made. I am of the opinion that they are going to be far improved including the offensive support they're going to give that pitching staff. I'll take a shot at this price and it's a risk on the health but I'll take that gamble. If
1: it's up to Ivaldi, he's going to hit that 150 just because he's got that vesting option for the third year of this contract mm-hmm. that goes up. It becomes his option. It becomes a player option for that third year if he hits 300 total innings through 23 and 24. So if he can average out 150, there you go. There's an extra an extra $14 million or whatever it is per <laughs> per season in his pocket which I'm sure he'll be going for. And it's not enough money per se that's going to have me questioning whether or not Texas is going to try to manipulate that so he doesn't hit that number. So I I don't see it being too much of a concern in that realm. All right, the Red Sox lost two of the members of their rotation from last season. And they go and they made a replacement. And I'm of the opinion that this actually wasn't a replacement at this point. Maybe it's my tinfoil hat that I'm putting on there, but I do believe that this was Heim Blue's plan all along, and that was to sign Corey Kluber into their rotation. This was his 1A option, but he, like I said, he re- he replaces those two guys that we just talked about, Eovaldi and Rich Hill, and he is slotted to be the number two starter in the Red Sox rotation heading into spring training right behind Chris Sale. Joe, is there a more volatile or less trustworthy rotation in baseball right now?
3: the athletics, the nationals maybe. It's not I good. trust them more though.
1: <laughs> like I trust I know what I'm going to get out of those rotations.
3: Yeah, that's fair. I think certainly in terms of the teams that we expect to perform at a higher level, Boston is just and you're a Red Sox guy, right, Adam? It's it's been a joke. And I'm a Blue Jays fan. This is good for me in general the way that this offseason has played out for the Red Sox, but Man, they're so dysfunctional, and it's hard to say if it comes from Bloom, if it comes from ownership. I know that Bloom's taken a lot of the heat, but... It feels like he's not even in control at this point anymore. It feels like he's the marionette being dictated to by management. Maybe I'm wrong about that. It just feels like this is like career suicide almost at this point for him, the way that this offseason has gone. The bullpen is, or not the bullpen, the rotation is extremely volatile. We have Chris Sale slotted in as the projected ace. He threw five innings last year. We don't know if he's going to throw. If he threw five innings again this year, I, I wouldn't really be surprised by it if he goes out and gives you maybe 120 or so like that would be absolute best case scenario but you go beyond Chris Sale there you got Corey Kluber who's going to be 37 years old you have Nick Pavetta who is very volatile in his own right you don't know what you're going to get there were times where Nick Pavetta was very good last season but he still ended up with a 4-5 ERA James Paxton didn't pitch at all last year he's also 34 years old we don't really know what he is going to be like and then you have Garrett Whitlock slotted into the five slot there who's can he be a long-term starter? I don't know. Like he was pretty good last year, but I think it's a fair thing to say that they are probably the most volatile rotation. I still think they're probably
1: not the worst rotation in baseball. I, I'm not saying, yeah, I wasn't saying the worst. I was very specific yeah. in my wording here. I just, you said it almost for every single guy. It's, I don't know what to expect. All the guys that, that whether they had a lack of innings last year or a lack of rotation spot or just being young or whatever it is, um, I don't know what to expect out of anybody.
3: Yeah, that's totally fair. Steamer has Chris Sale projected for 147 innings. I think that's pretty ambitious to to think that's going to happen. We don't know what's going to happen. Well, that with- depends
1: on how many bike rides he goes on, how many how many bikes he throws off the wall, like whatever he's going to be doing. That That's more on what <laughs> he does on the outside. Because a lot of his injuries, obviously, from last year, of all, they came from non-pitching or at least that one riding his bike.
3: Didn't he also punch something in the locker room or something like that?
1: I don't know that he got injured from that, but there's video of him making his the rehab TV. start. <laughs> it's got yeah, it to be tough to be TV
2: in the clubhouse hallway there.
1: Not the first time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he also ripped some jerseys. Like he he has a history.
3: <laughs> it's funny too because he went from a guy who was every single year you knew you were getting 200 innings out of him. Right so now we're hoping for 70. It's quite a bit can change in the last couple of years, but he's only thrown 47 innings over these last two seasons. So there's definitely a reason to be skeptical about his outlook for the season for sure.
1: Yeah. And leave it to bloom of course, all the rumors now are that teams are actually inquiring on the availability of Chris Sale and we'll see, we'll see where it goes in that, but I don't see anything will happen in that direction, but it's, of course, that's where the rumor mill goes. Kevin, <laughs> is there anybody in this rotation you're actually targeting based on where they're going right now or in their ADP?
2: Corey Kluber. Yeah, absolutely. As we talked on our last episode, I the Boston Red Sox offensive lineup is still a good lineup. Even everybody they've let walk, everybody they've let go, finished last place in the division. The offensive lineup was still good, and I think it still is. We talked a, lot, a little bit about that last week. And Corey Kluber threw five innings or more in 25 of 31 starts. So you give me a decent offense. You give me a pitcher that's going to go out there and go five innings. He's not who he used to be. But this is, <laughs> I feel like I'm going to say this 12 times an episode all the rest of the offseason. Chasing wins at 453 ADP. I'm in.
1: To give we give the Red Sox a little bit more credit, at least from what they did this offseason, their bullpen was one of the worst bullpens in baseball last year. And on paper, based on the additions that Bloom has made to that bullpen, it's anything but going into this year. It's a lot better, make it easier to say. And to your point, Kevin, if Kluber can go the five innings, the five and a third, the bullpen is not going to be the thing that stops him, or at least not as often as it was last year from getting that win opportunity. It's just going to be the offense putting up more runs than the other team to before he comes out of the game. So it's all going to be about how much damage they can do to the opposing team starter to actually put up enough runs to give him support because he's still going to need it. He's not going to be immune. He's not going to be putting up five innings of shutout ball go uh, most in most games. I don't think not in this environment, but it's not going to be the bullpen that kind of takes that away from him. So he's got that going for him, which is, which is nice. All right. The last signing, we'll finally get out of the pitching spear here, Kevin, and talk about Gene Segura going, to, signing a two-year deal with the Miami Marlins. And then on top of that, reading Craig Mish, one of the best beat writers out there, covers the Marlins for many years now. He, his belief and the belief of many others is that Segura will be Miami's opening day third baseman, gaining that eligibility in short order if that holds true. What's your new outlook on Segura in his new environment, Kevin?
2: It depends. It depends on what you want from Gene Segura. If you want the double digit home runs with a little bit of speed, this is probably not the spot for him. If you want him to run more, even at 33 years old, which is quite possible with this landing spot. If he indeed does lead off, as I think most of us expect he will, leading off in front of Jazz Chisholm and Garrett Cooper for stolen bases and runs scored, especially with the new pickoff and pitch clock rules and size of the bases. I think this is Gene Segura. At 33 years old, this is just the type of thing that can counteract his, his age, right? So, yeah, maybe he's lost half a step. The rules gave that back to him. And now he goes to a team where he's going to lead off, play every day at third base, and they like to run. And you could actually speak to that. More more than I know, you probably have those numbers in front of you from a team aspect from Florida. It seems to me like they will let a guy run. Uh, we got All we got to do is the, look at the John team, Birdie, right? Yeah,
1: yeah. The one big caveat with the Marlins is they're changing managers. You got right. Skip Shoemaker in there now. Don Mattingly is out. Don Mattingly obviously was more than willing to let his faster guys run. Even the guys in the mid-tier speed were able to run because in old adages, What else are they going to do? The Marlins need to do what they need to do to move the runners along. And a lot of that came by force on the base pass. So we'll see what Skip Shoemaker does. He doesn't really have any background as far as like, you you can't go back and see what he's done in past This his first managerial gig. Obviously he played for over a decade. So he's got the experience on the field, but we'll see how he translates that from a managerial standpoint in strategy. But I think the new rules, like you mentioned, that alone does Give him that step back, as you said. And I do. I am also of the camp that the new rules are going to benefit the players. Not so much the players that are already running, but the players that are able to run and maybe are moving their way down into the ability to run and give them extra life rather than give Trey Turner 70 stolen bases (laughs) per se.
2: Right, And he was successful eight out of nine attempts prior to his injury last year, which was great. He got injured in May and missed three months of the season and he had he was eight for nine in stolen base attempts prior to that point in only 179 plate appearances and that is what we want to see because in almost 600 plate appearances in 2021 he only had nine stolen bases so it it could have been general health not relating to the injury he suffered later could have been the Phillies saying, hey, let's turn you loose. Could have been him saying, okay, I'm ready. I I want to run more. But I think with the, the leadoff spot for the Marlins, I think those attempts will be there.
1: Yeah. And his sprint speed has been going down, but it's fluctuated over the last couple of years. He's lived in the high 50 percentile range to all the way up to 82nd percentile rate. So he's never been a huge burner. He's just been a smart base runner. So I, 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 I and I,
2: those are the guys, these rules help the most, right? The The ones that know when to take advantage. Yes, absolutely.
1: Yeah, I agree. We talked about rumors elsewhere, Joe, with the Red Sox and what have you. But there's, of course, with a signing like this, Gene Segura, obviously second baseman by trade, going into a situation that has an established second baseman in their own right in Jazz Chisholm. It seems like there's more rumors of not only Segura moving to third rather than bumping Jazz over to short and keeping Segura at second, but there's rumors that'll end up supplanting guys like Joey Wendell, Miguel Rojas instead being on the move. Thinking about them of being in new situations by the time spring training rolls around, does it make you any more or less interested in the likes of Joey Wendell, Miguel Rojas, or somebody else that might get displaced because of this move? So you're playing a third base for the Marlins?
3: Maybe in a DC. I can't see myself taking them like my content that I like to focus on, because I think that there's not really focused on enough in the community is more 12 team, Yahoo, ESPN, those kind of leagues, the home leagues of the world i don't think that those guys are going to make a difference they're really one way or the other there might be stretches where joey wendell turns it on like we've seen in the past and maybe he has some value i don't really see it with rojas i believe he's just shortstop eligible it's a pretty deep position and i don't think if you want to take him with one of your last picks in a dc i'd be fine with it but i don't really have much hope for these guys having that much value this is another note that i just noticed here actually before we started recording i was looking at roster resource and they had gene segura slotted in the six hole and now they've updated it just while we've been recording here to have him leading off i think that's probably where he's going to be and i I think there will still be room for wendell if they want to keep him there as the starting shortstop i think it's more rojas to be likely to be traded i can't see myself really being that interested in either one if i had to choose i'd go with wendell but i don't think either one of them is really going to move the needle so much for you
1: yeah, I worry about Wendell's situation with the Marlins. If nothing else, just on the surface, he had the contract that they had with him, is that there was a team option. Even though he is still arbitration eligible, they declined the team option and instead gave him and uh, tendered him a contract through arbitration. So we'll see how that works itself out. But I, it makes me believe that Wendell's not the guy that they want continue to start in any one particular position. I and mean, he's more of a free utility guy that's going to come in and maybe play four out of seven games a week in, in different varying roles. I agree. He, I was a big Wendell fan last year in the spurts in which you could actually utilize him, especially if you're trying to stream stolen bases in that realm. But he did not get the same kind of opportunity that Birdie did, which they were pretty much interchangeable in that at the beginning of the season, in my mind. It's like whoever was going to take advantage of the opportunities the most early was going to get 41 stolen bases, which we obviously saw out of Birdie. And
3: it's kind of interesting, too, that Roster Resource has Birdie listed on the bench right now. So people who took early shares of John Birdie, probably not too happy taking him. I know he wasn't that expensive. Take him around in the top 250 picks. He might just be, it might be the mild straw effect from the year prior, a bunch of steals that we're chasing. And it might not pan out, especially if he's not going to have a starting role. So I'm. I don't have any John Birdie shares, but I'd be worried for people who do. All
1: right, guys, that's enough news for the day. We've had more signings than I expected by this time of the recording, and I'm sure there'll be some stuff that comes out between <laughs> now and when we actually put out the episode. But for now, we're going to move on to the main theme of the episode, and that's going to be talking about some a couple narratives, some biases. This episode's going to be going out on New Year's Day. So we want to revolve this around the resolutions that we might be making when it comes to how we draft or how we manage our teams. And we'll get to that, all that great stuff just a moment after this quick break. All right, guys, we are back. And like I said, we are going to be talking about a couple narratives that we wanted to bring some light onto. Each one of us has decided to kind of take the lead on one particular narrative. And there's a whole bunch. I put out a tweet the other day. It's just like, hey, what are the narratives that you, that people are seeing over the last couple of years that you're starting to question whether or not they were actually true or if it's something we just keep jumping, jumping in with. And we took three of those. We took three. There were a whole lot more. Check out that it's one of my more recent tweets. You can see that thread there and see the different options that people have brought out. But we're going to get into three of them right now. Joe, I'm going to have you start us off real quick. And you brought up one of the ones that I think I saw quite a bit replied in my tweet. So I wanted to get your take on that. And you're looking at the value of multi-positional eligibility. And of course, this is a draft narrative that we're talking about in general. But as you pick up players throughout the year, of course, their people gain eligibility, whether or not that makes them more valuable or not. Talk to me about where you're at with this narrative that we see throughout the course of the year.
3: Definitely changes depending on where you're playing. Like I mentioned, I focus a lot on those shallower leagues and I don't think that positional eligibility really matters that much in those situations. Like I think if you're in a draft champions format and you're getting later in drafts, you want to have guys that you can plug in down the stretch second third in the outfield corner infield wherever you want to have that versatility especially at dc you can't pick up guys throughout the year so it, it makes a lot more sense in that format to prioritize those multi-position guys but I think that we might, as an industry, as a community, push up those guys a little bit farther than they maybe should because of the allure of moving them all over your lineup, when in reality, a lot of the time you're drafting whoever, you're sticking them in that one lineup spot, especially early in drafts, and they're not really going to move around barring an injury. And the one guy that really stands out to me the most this year in terms of that, and I don't think that it's his eligibility is the only reason we're seeing a high draft price, But Bobby Witt Jr., I think, is outrageously priced in drafts. He's going really high. He's going in the top eight picks. And I think there is a good portion of that is because he is eligible at third base. If he is just shortstop eligible, I couldn't see him still going ahead of guys that we're seeing, like Mookie Betts and Juan Soto's. I don't think that we would see that if he was just shortstop eligible. And I think we might be banking on... You can move him around. Third base is really weak, but we've made him a top eight draft pick now because of it. And I can't help but think that is largely because of his eligibility. There's also a lot of potential there, but he hasn't really shown that first round ability yet. It was one season. I think he was somewhere in the 20s or 30s. I don't have the Raswell player rate or pulled up in front of me, but he was somewhere in the 20s or the 30s. And now we are drafting him at his absolute ceiling cost here. And I think a lot of that is because of the eligibility. Now, he's the biggest example this season of that. But if you go down the draft board, you'll see other guys like Max Muncy as well sticks out to me. I think he's going a little bit higher than he probably should here in the first roughly 10 rounds, round pick 150, because of that second, third eligibility, which those are it's a great eligibility to have. Those are scarce positions, but I think there are guys like him, like Whit Maryfield, like Brandon Drury, where we don't look so much at the actual production, especially recently. We're more looking at, okay, I can put him in my corner infield. I can put him in the outfield. I can move him around. And we might push up guys, I think, a little bit unnecessarily just because of that eligibility.
1: Yeah, I think that to push back a little bit on the Bobby Witt example, I think you were right on. I think Bobby Witt's going up mainly because of the third base eligibility, not so much because of the multi- If he was third base only, then he, I think he'd be going the same spot. I don't think that that's making a point, but it is those later guys that I would venture to guess get pushed up due to the availability of the different positions. I know I've later in drafts. I definitely value somebody with two or three positional eligibility for the in-season flexibility, I feel it, I have to have a certain amount of backups at every position, even in a, especially even in a fab league. It gives me more of a flexibility on who I have to spend my money on. Now, in a 12-teamer, I'm less concerned about it, uh, but in a 15-teamer, it, it's more of a concern for me. Kevin, do you have like more of a concern over the availability of positions as you're drafting later on in drafts, or do you find yourself, like Joe said, specifically looking at with the position you think they're going to be playing them throughout the course of the season?
2: Definitely depends on the format. As Joe said, shallower leagues, I pay it almost no attention. I think it's way overblown. In fact, I pay so little attention to it that I end up with almost nobody with multi-positional eligibility because it that does affect their ADP and they're bumped up because of it. I think it's overblown in those leagues. As we've talked in the past, and in my opinion, in NFBC formats, I definitely want a couple of these guys because the later guys, not the early ones, but the later guys. Early one helps. You can move them around. It helps you shuffle things when you're in a pinch. But the later guys, the guy that I don't necessarily want in my lineup, but I have him sitting there if I need him on for the three-day weekend. I can put him in on Friday for more than one spot because – it's, it's not just that it's a bi-weekly lineup change that I can change on Friday or is it semi-weekly, whichever one it is, <laughs> the it's more the fa- the limited bench, right? The more limited bench you have in a league, the more valuable these guys are. And that just makes sense. But for early guys in drafts, I agree with Joe 100%. They're playing the, they're playing the position you draft them for typically, Sure, it's a bonus if you can slide a guy around when you need to, but it doesn't happen as often as we think, I don't think. And so, in most formats, I think it's overblown eligibility. But there, there are spots, and especially later rounds, especially when it comes to bench guys, that's when I'm interested.
1: See. First of all, I've looked this up enough times to know, Kevin, unfortunately bi-weekly means both things. It's really confusing. Oh, you okay, can use so it. Bi- bi-weekly is both every other week and twice a week, okay, like depending on how you want to use it. So I try not <laughs> to use it. <laughs> I, in a, I'm going to echo that. My old earlier thought, like I, I value the multi positional eligibility, the deeper my format for all the reasons we just stated But the other in my home league, 12 teamer dynasty league, I very specifically formatted my offensive roster to have guys that play multiple positions so that I can have less bench bats and still be able to utilize as many at bats. It's a head to head league. So the more at bats you can get even more per week. I feel like you have a better shot of taking, especially those counting categories per week. so I will go after guys that have multi positional eligibility if it fits my roster so that I can mix and match with less bench spots and then be able to use more bench spots in my pitching. So yeah, it definitely depends on your league. It depends on your format. As a general rule, I would say that there's more value in it the deeper your format and the deeper in the draft you're going. But yeah, I mean, I was drafting Bobby Witt higher last year, not because of the format of, because of the prospect, but because I knew he was going to gain third base eligibility and I was drafting him as a third baseman. It didn't matter to me that he was going to be a dual eligible because I knew I was already going to be plugging him in at third base. Carlos Correa, as an example, is a perfect example for this year. He's going to move up in drafts, not because he has the dual eligibility, but because he's expected if he ever passes his physical to gain third base eligibility that specific eligibility so joe i think i echoed that statement from you as well in that in in that realm so i think it's something to start questioning as you're getting as people are getting into drafts in 2023 how much do you actually value that and how are you actually going to use the players i think it's a good call out joe Kevin, I'm going to go to you in the direction that you want to go in. And we talked about it off air. I know there's one that you really want to go to, but we've probably talked about it enough. But feel free to throw that in there as well if you want.
2: Yeah, I'll just briefly mention it. Everybody, I think at this point, knows my opinion. And unless they're just tuning in and then welcome and thank you. But for a long time, we were gravitated to hitters that played in Coors Field. And I think in weekly lineup leagues, that's a big mistake now. They're, the, they don't have the superstars there anymore where the overall numbers are so overwhelming that they can absorb what the Rockies hitters do away from home. We don't have cargo. He's not in Colorado right now. When your best fantasy hitter is CJ Crone, and he is so horrendous on the road this script has changed. But as you said, we've talked a lot about that. I have beat that subject to death. So let's, I want to look at another one and this is interesting to me because this is fairly new, but I think it came along and got accepted so quickly that now it's overblown a little bit. I think we might be going too far and I'm talking about treating at-bats and innings pitched almost as if they are a category. And maybe not just a category, the category, right? And everything else will follow them. Yes, we're after counting stats. Yes, we can maximize potential opportunities to accumulate those stats the more at-bats and more innings being pitched. But that was great. Some of the best fantasy players out there have used that to their advantage and made a lot of money in the last couple of years. But when everybody starts doing it and everybody believes that, and we're getting to the point where we almost don't even pay attention to the quality of the innings and at bats anymore. I think it's time to sway the other way and looking more at what happens It doesn't matter if a guy gets 30 home runs and 80 RBI in 600 plate appearances or 500 plate appearances. They still count. The only situation that it affects us is in the ratio categories. If they're helping or hurting, we want more at-bats with the good ratios, less with the bad, obviously. But with our counting stats, it doesn't matter how many plate appearances it takes to get them. And that's really intriguing for me. A guy like Jock Peterson is probably the easiest example out there because we all know he is not going to play against lefties. And just real quick, ADP, 56th outfielder off the board, Steamer Projections with the abbreviated at-bats built in, he's the 47th ranked outfielder. That's fairly significant. Nine spots at, the, at that point. We're still talking starting outfielders in 15-team leagues. We're not even to bench spots yet. A guy like Josh Naylor. We know the Josh Bell signing has everybody a little worried about playing time. He still comes out as a top 20 first baseman being projected for less than 500 plate appearances. And his ADP is dropping. So that's something to take into consideration. My favorite one of these is another giant. We know the giants are they're they may be the team that we should talk about playing matchups more than the Rays that we're used to talking about. But Thyro Estrada, right? Thyro Estrada was amazing. He does have that dual eligibility we were just talking about, and that's actually something I want to bring up because there's a Big difference in his shortstop and his second base ADP. But both of them, they're well below where his projections put him, even with the limited plate appearances already built into that projection. So I think we get a little too caught up in this. And I think many will continue to do so. And we can use this to our advantage. These guys, if they perform to these projections, I am sure this is going to be similar as we start to see other projection systems come out, whichever one you believe in, just because Dyro Estrada is only projected for 541 plate appearances and the guy right below him, let's say or right above him, Corey Seager, 663 plate appearances, These, they're right next to each other in the steamer projections with 140 plate appearance difference. So we can use this to our advantage. We can get some value here if we're accepting that we want more quality plate appearances. And then, we're, as you said, when we're talking about this, we're kind of thinking about with draft season. As the season progresses... Then, yeah, we're trying to maximize what we can do. We're not going to leave these guys in a lineup in a two-day first half of the week in NFBC formats. And one of them, we're almost certain they're going to be sitting due to the platoon matchup. We're going to sit them in that situation if we can. It brings into another aspect of this that we've talked about in other situations already this offseason. How committed are you to maintaining your team? If you're gonna, if you're willing to put the time in, then these guys are great value. But there, you have to be willing to, as the season progresses, uh, put the time in, get some replacements in weeks like that where I just talked, where the platoon matchups aren't there, and the plate appearances are going to be so low that it just doesn't make sense to run them out there. But I think we need to shift back to quality of plate appearances, quality of innings pitched. We're still trying to maximize what we're getting, but I think we've gone a little too far, and it's happened really quick in the in the past few years.
0: Yeah, the
1: obvious caveat here is the very simple rundown is the more at bats you get, the more chance you have of the counting stats. And there's only in in typical five by five, there's only one ratio that you have to worry about. On the pitching side, you can crush two of your categories by, like you said bringing in too many poor innings into and and there's no guarantee that those innings are going to result in higher k rates higher (laughs) let's not talk about chasing wins so i get that and i'm upset at you because you came a little bit too prepared i'm like all right as you're talking i'm like all right i'm gonna ask him about this he brought that up all right i'm gonna ask him about this now i'm gonna bring that up and the major point i think you made there is how much effort do you want to be putting into your leagues how many like how many leagues do you play in <laughs> and how much time do you want to put into each one of them, even on a lineup changing situation and not just fab? Joe, you, as you mentioned earlier, like a lot of your content that you're really directing toward is toward the 12 teamers to the little bit of a shallower format, as you talk about Yahoo, their standard format, three outfielders, two util spots, and what have you. It, Is it more or less valuable to be able to mix and match and play these matchups in that kind of a format where you're not having to pay up per se for the guys you know are going to get quality at bats and you can really mix and match those platoon splits in those situations? Is it more or less valuable in that situation, in your opinion?
3: Honestly, the more I've realized more doing content this past season, Yahoo 12 teamer versus an NFBC league. You're almost playing a different game entirely. It's almost there's obviously both fantasy baseball. When you talk about five outfielders, corner, middle, deeper benches, everything else, it's it really feels different. So I, I really think that in shallower formats, there are so many great replacement level options on the waiver wire that you don't really need to focus on it so much. If you're just somebody who has your home league, you play in maybe one call it one category league, one points league. I don't know that you really need to put you still should prep, but I don't know that you need to put that much effort into it where you're looking at projected plate appearances so much. There's different levels of fantasy player. There's some people who might play free leagues and Mm -hmm. put in hours and hours of effort just because they enjoy it. But I don't think you really need to in a shallower format. When you're getting into those deeper leagues, like I'm getting into more NFBC-based stuff this year, then it becomes really important as you speculate down your draft board. I, like you said, Kevin came too prepared there. There's not really too much you can add to what he said. It was, it was perfectly said. I think what you said, Adam, that made sense to me as well, though, is those the more volume you have, there is more opportunity for home runs, for RBIs, for runs, and even on the pitching side. The volume pitchers this past season, for the most part, were very good. There were thirty, or sorry, 27 pitchers that threw 180 innings. Only two of them had an ERA above four. It's just a small sample size of one year, but I think for the most part, when guys are going out there and getting, especially early in your drafts, guys who are going out there and pitching 160, 170, 180 innings, I think for the most part, they're going to be pretty viable options. And again, it changes so much based on format. But if you're talking a shallower format, I don't really think you need to worry so, so much about projections and whatnot. Once you're talking 15 teamers, 750 player pool, then the whole conversation changes.
2: Yeah, one other thing that this can change our strategy drastically as the season project as the season progresses. I heard Phil Dessau bring this up. I can't remember which pod it was on. I apologize. He's been on a few recently, but the ball plays a big part in this 2019 with that ball. We got crushed. If we were streaming pictures and looking for our volume 2021, it, it was mixed, but it follows. If we have a lively ball and you're planning on streaming pictures, you really need to slow down and probably change focus and, You already drafted so that the the more reliable starters aren't out there. So then we shift to those middle relievers we love so much, right? If it's a lively ball. If it's a dead ball, Rich Hill, yeah, we'll go back to Rich Hill for the Pirates and we'll throw him out there. He might go five shutout innings. That's something else to keep in mind as the season goes on. We can change focus on whether we're chasing innings and plate appearances or, oh, do we need to slow down? This ball's really jumpy. I'm not touching this pitcher.
1: Yeah, I mean, you can get your and you can get your innings. You can get those extra innings in one of two ways. You can you stream them. As you said, you can continue to stream in and get as many of those as possible. Or Joe, to your point, you can focus at the top half of your draft at those guys that are going to be a little bit more, quote, reliable. And I know they're pitchers. None of them are reliable when it comes right down <laughs> to it. But to your point, if those, if that trend, as you said, from last year carries over and we see those guys that are going 180 plus giving you quality ratios on top of the volume that they're putting forth, not only are you adding to your innings and getting those counting stats at the strikeouts and hopefully the wins and what have you, but you're also stabilizing. Those ratios so that you can take more risk and add on those streamers if you really wanted to. It's the same thing I always say about like catchers who give you a poor average. They're not hurting you that much because they're not putting forth as many at bats. So that ratio, those not, they're not hurting your ratio as much as that 247 might show you that they are because the volume isn't there. Same thing is happening with your pitchers. If you're, bringing in stabilizers at the top end of your rotation. They're doing a lot more to help you in those ratios than the streamers are hurting you in those ratios, if that makes sense.
2: None of us were projecting Tony Gonsolin to go out there sure. and get us 20 wins. However, if you were scared away by innings, you, he was the sixth, most valuable starting pitcher in fantasy baseball in 2022 in 130 innings. Insane. I know. We weren't counting on those wins and we can't <laughs> Max Scherzer only threw 145 innings. He was still top 10 in major league baseball. So the quality uh, of what we're getting affects this greatly. We can go further down the list. Somebody that's lower down in ADP where this becomes e- even more valuable. Christian Javier. is getting a lot of talk recently. He's going to be moving up draft boards. I think. He's going to be one of these guys we see going a lot higher in March. He's a top 15 guy in 2022 in 148 innings. So if we're just looking at innings, we're going to skip over these guys. Clayton Kershaw is tough because lots of times we'll have him in our starting lineup for a week. And then they announce on Wednesday, we're going to skip this start. We expect that's going to happen a couple times through the season. And then we don't get him replaced in our lineup. That's our big fear. Maybe it doesn't matter. In 126 innings, he's a top 20 pitcher. So I think we got to concentrate more on quality. Yes, at bats and innings does matter. I'm not saying we need to ignore it. I just think we might have taken this a little too far.
1: Yeah, something to consider as you are putting together your rankings and what is important to you. It goes into skill versus role. That's another common narrative that people talk about. Draft skill, not role. Where these platoon splits, that fits into that same realm and with the pitchers. And it's very similar, especially if you're in a situation like Kershaw, as you mentioned, Kevin.
2: Caveat is the head leagues is, is different. That's much more dangerous sure. in a head-to-head league, for, of course. A lot
1: more can go wrong on a per-week basis rather than season-long, for sure. Right. All right, and then DFS, whole different <laughs> conversation. All right, the area that I wanted to touch on real quick is just the idea that prospects get hyped up a little too much going into your drafts. We saw a lot of success last year out of the guys going, but I'm going to eventually guess, I'm actually going to say that after looking through some of the results over the last couple years, that those top end, uh, the guys that are getting pushed up in, within the top 200 of ADP are actually do there's more often that they're doing more good for your team than bad. And there's less risk in looking at, I guess, the other Topic that kept coming up was the idea of groupthink or looking at ADP as a value indicator, which honestly you have to do in, in, in many situations, the ADP part, just to get that value based on what you're looking at. But we look, we saw in 2022, five rookie eligible players taken in the top 200 ADP. I'm looking at just main event and it just because all of those drafts happened all pretty much at the same time within a very short period of time together toward the end of March. Um, And so the ADP is a little bit more accurate, as opposed to looking at draft champions or even online championships where those drafts are spread out throughout the course of the offseason. They can really fluctuate on where these guys are going. You had Bobby Witt go at 51, Julio Rodriguez go down at 142, Isaiah Suzuki, rookie eligible at 151, Joe Ryan at 181, and Camilo Duvall at 188. Julio, Duvall, and Witt all provided positive value based on where they were drafted, where only Ryan, Joe Ryan, and Suzuki were quote overdrafted. They only overdrafted by about three rounds when you look at an auction calculator and what they put together for their final stats. So it's three out of those five guys still providing you with really high value. Twenty twenty one, there were ten rookie eligible players drafted in the top two hundred, and only in that we didn't see as much value come out. Only Ryan Mountaincastle and Joe Romero, Jordan Romaro. Provided any kind of value with Randy Rosarina and Dylan Carlson. They pretty much broke even. So you had four guys not hurt you, while the rest were the other half of them were overdrafted by at least 10 rounds. So they're giving you pretty negative value based on where you were drafting them. And they were all drafted within, again, within the top 200. So if you look at guys that are going past 200, there was definitely some really good value to be had later on in the drafts. But there's a whole lot of players that are going that are they're not hurting you as much because you're more willing to be making those drops and not, they're not making it into your starting rotation so what i'm saying is if the talent is there I think the hype is validated in the top half of your drafts. And this isn't just the recent. If I jump down to 2019, we had seven rookies taken in the top 200. And, and most of them provided you with value as well. Will, Will Smith, the catcher, of course, providing you the most value at that year. And then you had Victor Robles and Eli Jimenez actually broke even as well. Did have a couple guys bring you down a little bit. Vlad at that time going way too early. Chris Paddock. Garrett Hampson and Kikuchi all go all being risk not worth taking as they provided you negative value based on where they were picked. And then back to 2018, you had two guys taken within the top 200. Lo and behold, they're Ronald Acuna Jr. and Shohei Otani. So obviously they brought you everything that you wanted and more with at least three rounds worth of value based on where you were picking them in. Acuna was going at ADP 80. So he's in the top 100, still gave you three rounds worth of value at that pick. Sum it up like later on in the drafts. As I said, there were in the last two seasons, there were over 30 players that were drafted that lost you value. As opposed to going back to 2019, 2018, you only saw about 16 or 19, respectively, players that lost you value. A lot less rookies being drafted in general back in the day, if you will, prior to 2020. And this idea that all these rookies are getting pushed up in drafts is very new in the short time frame that I'm looking at, and you're still getting the same value guys per section of your draft. So you had guys going between pick 201 and 450 that gave you top 200 value, about the same every year, all four of these years. And I'm not looking at 2020. So I'm looking back to 2018. You had five, six, six, and seven, respectively, for each of these seasons. So the value is still there. I think you're right to, if you have guys that are, guaranteed a spot. They have the talent. They're more of a guarantee that I think than people realize at least based on recent performance in the last five years. Of course, you're going to have guys that don't go. I think what we're seeing in recent, like I said, in the last two years, at least, especially after the pandemic season, we're having a lot more people willing to take the shot on a guy jumping up. Because we did see guys like Pete Alonzo make a huge jump. He was going at about ADP of two hundred one the season he was drafted, and he brought you top top six round value from that spot. And so those guys aren't really hurting you though. So I can't really say that there's a lot of hype in, in in that because these are guys that you're taking darts on at the toward in the back at least the back half of your draft, and you're willing to. Part ways with them if they're not, they don't have the role, they're not providing the value that you're looking at. Going, let me ask you guys like going into this year, we see Corbin Carroll at ADP. I'm looking at DC ADP from November 1st onward. Corbin Carroll going at 65, Gunnar Henderson going at 91, Grayson Rodriguez going at 193. Those are the three guys that I'm seeing going in the top 200 right now. So it's not as though the success of all these rookie eligible players from last year that we saw is really bumping up a whole lot of guys into the top 200. Maybe that'll change by the time the main event comes around, but as of right now, we're not really seeing it. You have Kode Senga going at 206, Josh Young going at 210, and Jordan Walker going at 242. If I miss somebody, if you guys, if there's somebody I blatantly miss, please, by all means, call me out on it. But those are the next three guy, three rookie eligible players that are going, and they're all going past 200 right now. Senga gonna move up. That's a large sample, most of it in which he was unsigned. So that'll continue to move for him. But Jordan Walker's not a guarantee to make an opening day roster for the Cardinals. And even if he does, we don't know what kind of role he'll play based on the roster construction. Josh Young, we saw the struggles that he had toward the end of last year. Still rookie eligible though, and still third base eligible, which everybody's been talking at nauseum how, how weak of a position that is at the moment. Joe, I'll start with you, like. Are, where do you all like in this in the, in this realm of a narrative do you feel as though the the idea that these prospects could still provide you with the value in which they are being picked is a fallacy or is it something that you subscribe to
3: no i think that they definitely can just look at Julio and Bobby Witt from last year they were incredible draft picks wherever you got them especially if you drafted early you're getting Julio very late I just think it's very individualized because for every Julio, there is a Jared Kalanick. For every Bobby Witt, there is a Spencer Torkelson. I think you have to look on a case-by-case basis as opposed to saying the prospects this year are very good or we should take a chance on them. Looking at Corbin Carroll specifically, I think that his price is also a little bit too high. And I think that there might be some inflation there because of the success we saw from the rookies last season, specifically Julio and Bobby Witt. They were they were incredible fantasy assets. And I think that we might, we're talking about multiple years worth and there are hits and there are misses, but I think the recency bias is going to be pretty real for people in the community and they say oh Corbin Carroll he's got the same general outlook as Julio that five tool player should be playing most of the time I know Arizona is not exactly lacking for outfielders so there is a little bit of a concern about him maybe platooning a bit but regardless I still think the price is maybe a little bit inflated just because of the hope that they can recreate some of the magic of the class from last year. I think you have to look at, you can't look at it as an entire class. I think you have to look at it every individual player like Gunnar Henderson. I feel a lot more comfortable taking him somewhere in the nineties than I would take Corbin Carroll, based on where he plays position-wise, and also because I think he was a little bit better. Maybe I don't have the stats in front of me for Henderson, but I think that the price can be um prematurely inflated before we've really seen those players actually do it at the big league level because of the promise of different rookies. But there's hits and there's misses with with every rookie. I don't think you can look at it as a whole class. You have to look at it on a case by case basis.
1: Yeah, I think that's a great valid point. Is the fact that it, you brought up Kellenick? Kellenick didn't have a role at that time that he was being drafted. In, in, in that rookie year, he was not on the opening day roster. He didn't have a specific role. He was still getting drafted at ADP of 199 in main events without that role. Now you move up and guys like Randy Rosarena, that same class going at ADP of 52 because we saw what he could do. Like We saw that amazing run in the postseason he did the year prior. So it obviously makes a big difference as far as like you have the Corbin Carrolls and the Gunnar Hendersons who made their debut last year, kept their rookie eligibility for obvious reasons by their teams. And so you have an opportunity to kind of see what they can do at the major league level. And that plays a big part of it. That being said, you still have guys that are going post 200, providing you with better than two hundred ADP value. And I think that is what, those are the darts that you're seeing a lot more of, and whether or not those are still going to be the ones that are you're more willing to put your eggs in that basket later on in the draft if they have less experience. Or in Kellenex, exp- he's right on that cusp. He was barely going above the 200 mark, and so I think there obviously was still some risk involved. A lot of people saw m- more risk of there. And we didn't. I don't know that we saw this much risk <laughs> that we saw out of the production from him last year, but. Kevin, are you and we talk about the risk of these guys not getting playing time in in draft champions, but in your fab leagues, do you see the again, main event fab league, you can make adjustments, and so is the risk there or is the hype a little bit more heightened because I'm using main event numbers and this is a fab league where you can make adjustments throughout the course of the season?
2: Yeah, maybe. I also think this goes in cycles, right? We we were a little we were a little leery of prospects last season you mentioned flad jr his first year or so when we were drafting him as a starter jared kelnick always comes to mind joe brought up spencer torkelson and these guys and we were a little down and now bobby witt jr and julio rodriguez and adley Rutschman, when he came up were so good now these guys are getting pushed up i think part of it part of what we need to take into consideration, especially Corbin Carroll and Gunnar Henderson. We're all assuming they're in the lineup on a full-time basis on opening day because we already saw them with the major league club last season that inflates it even more. Typically when we're going to get value on these guys is when there's a question of whether they're going to start the season with the team. And then Absolutely. To your point, Adam, the fact that it's a fab league makes it a much easier risk to take, especially these guys. Your cutoff was top 200 and then you the guys just outside the top 200. Now we're talking 14th, 15th round in 15 team leagues. And that's a spot where we can take that type of risk, especially in Fab leagues, to your point. Joe, if we're looking r- just
1: outside the top 200, like uh, those three guys that I mentioned, let's spe- let's specifically talk about Jordan Walker and his situation. Is this a type of player, it's somebody who has no experience, somebody who, you know, didn't hit AAA yet? This is like Michael Harris 2.0. In that respect, how much of like it, Michael Harris's experience from last year or Julio Rodriguez's example from last year dictates what we see out of the hype of somebody like Jordan Walker, who again, doesn't have a guaranteed spot at the major league level. You don't know what kind of total stats he's going to put up be, based on that fact. And how much risk do you actually believe that there would be in, in that situation?
3: I think the price is a little bit too high on Walker. Would you say he's going to forty two? We don't even know when he's going to be up, if he's going to be up. I know you can look at Michael Harris, who is like the best example of those miracle come-ups, and he ended up being like a top 50 fantasy player. It goes back to what I said earlier. It's very individualized. I wouldn't, in my own head, say Harris did it, so therefore Walker can do it and whoever else comes up midseason. season. You look at Walker; he's blocked there. Like they could shoehorn him in somewhere, but even right now, they don't have Nolan Gorman projected in the lineup. Uh, pretty, pretty taken care of, barring an injury. I don't know that he is going to pay off at that price. If you're talking about a couple of the other guys you mentioned here, like Senga at 206, I like Josh Young at 210. It could pay off. It might not. He wasn't exactly fantastic when he came up last year. There's still risk, even though it's mitigated by the fact that you're later in your drafts. These guys where we don't really know, even with Senga, we don't know what he's going to be like. He could come over and be fantastic. He could come over and be absolutely terrible. We don't have that track record to really base it on. And that's another thing I haven't mentioned in this episode, but... I am, I'm a sucker for a track record, even if it's just a year plus maybe. Maybe a year's not quite enough, but just show me that you've done it. Show me that you have an established role. With Jordan Walker specifically, I think that he's going to be fantastic when he comes up, but at the same time, he might come up and bat ninth. He might get some at-bats here and there. I personally wouldn't be drafting him. I think that it's still a little bit too rich for me inside the top 250 picks, really for any of these guys. Maybe Senga I wouldn't mind taking a chance on, and he's just going to keep getting more expensive. But as for the other two guys, prove it to me first, and then I'll draft you next
1: year. the And we talked, I'm mentioning a lot about the guys are going in the top 200 and then a couple of guys going right after that. There's something to be said as well about looking at guys that are coming up in season and how much fab we're actually spending on these players. So I'm just going to use last year of the players that were undrafted and available for free agency in the main event. You had, you had eight players actually provide enough value to make it worth like a big So, I'm talking value that put them in the top 200 of fantasy players by the end of the season. And you had 113 who gave you less than that. So, the fact is that a lot of rookies are going to come up throughout the course of the season. And it's going to be, it's going to continue to be very difficult to gauge who's going to actually provide that kind of value, especially when they don't provide the stability of, as Kevin, as you echoed of the Gunner Hendersons of the world, of the Corbin Carols of the world that have a guaranteed spot on opening day because we've already seen them make that jump. Of course, you can always go by prospect list. You can always just go by gut and joke to, to to your point. It is going to be a case-by-case basis. Some guys are going to be harder to gauge like Spencer Strider because his role changed throughout the course of the first quarter of the season as he ramped up into a starter role and you didn't really know what his role was going to be at, until a certain point. Michael Harris could have very easily have been sent down after a week if he struggled and literally just never did. And so to know what kind of pedigree they are bringing that this is where pedigree, I think, does play a bigger role in 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 these analysis. Like you say all the time, oh, this guy has pedigree or he had pedigree, knowing that it's not just a one off call up is hard to gauge until until it actually happens.
3: Until it's too late pretty much at that point. Yeah, yeah right.
1: <laughs> we say that all the time. By the time you make these moves, it's it's probably too late. Right. These are just three different narratives that we get into. We got a, I got a lot of responses on that tweet. Anything from between that scarcity that we talk about all the time, maybe putting in too much effort or too much thought into the ballpark factors when a guy signs with a new spot. I know it's like one of the first things we bring up, especially when it comes to pitchers. A lot of different things to consider and something that maybe we touch on in future episodes. But I think these are three good things that are worth considering as you are ramping up your draft season throughout the course of the off season, something to consider as the new year rolls over. If you have any other comments, let us know, tweet at us. You can reference the episode or just talk about it, have a conversation about it. It's interesting to see other people's takes as far as what they've experienced. And as Joe, as you mentioned, There's a whole bunch of different formats to be considering in these situations, whether it's the shallower formats, Yahoo, all the way up to AL, NL only leagues and your high end, your 15 teamers on the NFBC and stuff like that. With that all being said, Kevin, do you have any additional takes to bring to the bank to take into the new year with us?
2: I I think it's just important that we remember that none of what we're saying is set in stone and nothing is, we're not saying anything is 100% one way or the other. And Joe brought it up when you were talking about our rookies here, it depends on the case and we can really break it down with, with the playing time. It depends. One of the things like you said that you brought up that we didn't really dive into home road splits Home road splits. That's I'll go back. Nick Pollock and Derek Hardy two years ago in Arizona. Home road splits are dumb, right? With the exception <laughs> of Colorado Rockies hitters, because what we're talking about has is not as much as the ballpark as it is pitch movement. We're talking about everywhere on the road is different than Colorado, but when you just look at home runs, home road splits for a Los Angeles Dodger, for example. We know six or seven of those home game road games are in San Francisco and six or seven of those road games are in Colorado. Why are you putting those in the same bucket? So there's all kinds of different things here to keep in mind. And sometimes we start talking about these different aspects and they're contradictory at times. That's when you really got to break it down to the case by case basis and decide which of these narratives that you do believe in you believe in more and is going to affect that certain player more than some of the others it's all part of the big puzzle and it's why we love this game
1: yep and that is that last statement is as fair as they come all right i guess that's gonna do it man joe Thank you so much for jumping in with us. This was a, this was an eye-opening conversation, I think. It's different than the way we format most episodes. So I really appreciate you bringing the homework and jumping in this conversation with us. Can you let everybody know or remind everybody where they can follow you, what you got working on, both on the podcast and at Sports Ethos and anywhere else you might be putting out content?
3: I want to say thank you guys for inviting me on here. It's an honor. First episode of 2023. Really cool stuff. You guys are close to 100 episodes also. That's really great. You guys do fantastic work. I try and listen whenever I can to the pod. Uh, Also, it's a real honor to, to be asked to join talking with my old golf buddy, Kev, again, and Adam here for the first time. Although... Not much of a golfer, but Kev, Chris, and yeah. Mendy there were running circles around me. I'm glad. That's another side note. We were not in that other group because that first group of golfers in Arizona was just incredible. But yeah, thank you guys for having me. You guys can check me out over on Twitter at Joe orico 99 I'm sure that my name will be in the episode title somewhere. Just my name with 99 added on to the end of it. You guys can find the podcast, my podcast, Fantasy MLB Today, wherever you get your podcast Apple, Google, Spotify, and the rest of them. And then you can find my written work over at sportsethos.com there. We are just started the baseball division last year. I'm leading that up. We've got a team of writers that we're bringing on. we also got a new podcast going to be coming out soon with a couple of people that you people probably know if you're if you listen to podcasts regularly we're going to be starting up an NFBC based weekly podcast that sports ethos as well so a lot of good stuff on the way there i'm going to have positional rankings out starting in the first week of the new year i took a pause cuz i was on second base and it made me feel very sad so i had to pause <laughs> i'm going to get back to them but i needed to take a breather there for a couple of days over the holiday but those will be up on the website starting in the first week of the new year but yeah all the work pretty much at sportsethos.com there
1: that's awesome. Yeah, I'm I'm set to be joining the Triple Play guys on one of their positional rankings episodes and they have not told me which one it is, but I'm hoping second base is not an option. Though I, if I say that, it'll probably end up being like second catcher or clo- or relief pitcher or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Joe, thank you again so much for joining us. That's going to do it for episode 95 of On the Wire. We will be back throughout the rest of the off season. Make sure you're subscribing, sharing, reviewing the podcast, wherever you're listening. You can follow myself on the Twitter at 80 grade. That's all spelled out. Kevin is at Hasting Kevin. Of course, follow the pod itself at on the wire pod. I'd like to once again, thank our guest today, Joe Orico, for joining us. Follow him at Joe Orico 99 on the Twitter. You can find a link to that and all of his work in the show description. And after all that, I am Adam Howe, and on behalf of Kevin Hastings, thanks for listening, and we bid you goodbye.